Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in it to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 8 to 17. Last week, we started looking into this letter, and it was Paul's introduction in which he described himself, identified who he was. He uh, described the people he's writing to, to the Christian believers in Rome who, are, who belong to Jesus, who are loved by God, who are called to be saints. And he gave a hint about what his content is going to be in this letter. He started to talk about the gospel concerning God's Son, but he didn't elaborate on what that was yet. Well, now we're going to start getting into what's in that gospel. We're going to start getting into the content of the good news that Paul is eager to write about and eager to preach to them. So let's start in verse 8, and we'll read up through 17 and then pray. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. We need it revealed again. This morning, Lord, you wrote this to Christians. You wanted to reveal new things in the gospel to them, which we ask you now to reveal to us. We ask you, Lord, to speak to us and do for us what Paul wanted to do for the Roman Christians. <laughs> Impart to us this morning a spiritual gift. Impart to us new appreciation for excitement about, um, faith in the gospel that you have so graciously given to us through Jesus Christ. So be honored now in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, we had solar panels put on our roof. A solar City rep came to our door one day and said we can get these put on for free and it would save us a lot of money every year on electrical bill. So, all right, I'm, I'm into that. <laughs> I like to save money. So uh, we set up an appointment for him to come back and tell us all about it. So he comes back. He's got his briefcase full of information. And as is the want of uh, salespeople, first he starts with some small talk. 
you know, like, oh, I see you have a family here. You know, uh, how many kids do you have? Uh, how long have you been living here? And you're in your house. Uh, what makes you interested in solar energy? So, so we're having this chit-chat. We're having this small talk. Now, I'm not really interested in small talk, at least not at that particular meeting. <laughs> you know, I just want to hear about solar energy, right? That's what you're here for. Just pull something out of that briefcase and let's start going through it. Show me how much money I'm going to uh, save uh, how, what's it going to look like when you put holes in my roof? How, is that going to leak? You know, I want to know the details to decide if I should do this or not. Let's just cut to the chase. Let's get to the reason for your visit. Well, we might be tempted to approach our passage this, that way this morning because there's some real meat in here. There's the main thing, we might say, the main theme, which shows up in verses 16 and 17. This gospel... That is the power of God for salvation, and in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So I want to hear about that, Paul. Well, you've been tempting me, you've been talking about this gospel concerning the Son, so let's, let's get to that. No small talk. <laughs> and we can look at verses 8 to 15 as small talk, as necessary pleasantries, the things that you have to say because you're writing a letter to somebody. But there's not really anything in there. Let's get to verses 16 and 17. <laughs> well, I hope you know that there's no small talk in the Bible. <laughs> Only big talk. <laughs> Only God's Word speaking to us everything we need to hear. No unnecessary words. No blank space. What's in, what's in 8 to 15 is a necessary precursor to 16 and 17. It's, it's the way God sets the table, if you will, for us to hear the gospel itself. So we're not going to skip over it. We're going to take our time and spend as much time on it as Paul did and spend our time in 8 to 15 as well as 16 to 17. We're going to divide this up into three sections and learn what the Lord has to teach us in each one. So let's start out. The first section is Paul's encouragement to the believers. His encouragement to the believers. He starts by saying in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So before I get to the gospel concerning the Son, I want you to know how thankful to God I am for you, for all of you, all of you believers there in Rome. Why is he thankful? Because the faith of these believers is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, word has traveled that there are Christians in Rome. Word has traveled that in that city, there are people who belong to Jesus, who are loved by God and called to be saints. And this report has come to Paul, and he says, I thank God for that. I thank God for you. We should consider the context so we can appreciate why this is great news for Paul. Let's think about what Rome was like in Paul's day. It was the capital of the Roman Empire, number one. So that's where Caesar rules the empire from. This is the governmental headquarters of all the, the world, basically, all the populated world in Paul's area, anyway. This is where might and wealth and power are concentrated. You had Rome, you had massive stone buildings for all kinds of purposes. You got palaces 
for some of the important people to live in. You've got aqueducts which carry water from far away into the city of Rome to, to water the baths and to provide drinking water and everything else. It's like amazing scientific breakthroughs. Um, they've got palaces, they've got places for theaters and for the Colosseum, they've got places for entertainment. Uh, there's all sorts of amazing stuff in Rome. It was like Washington, D.C. and New York City all rolled into one. A place of power and a place of wealth and technology kind of a shining jewel of the empire, but as so often happens when power and wealth are concentrated, especially without God, there's also a lot of decadence, there's a lot of depravity in Rome, you've got the cult of emperor worship, so the Caesars would stamp on their coins, divine son of God, you've got dozens of pagan temples to gods, even unknown gods. You've got prostitutes who serve at the temples. You've got wealthy Roman villas, but right next to that you've got this crowded, overcrowded, smelly, dirty area where most people live, you know, rife with crime. One of the authors of the day said you could find every virtue and vice known to mankind in the city of Rome. Rome was a picture of what it happens when mankind is left to his own devices without God. There's beauty, and there's also depravity, especially a lot of depravity. Rome wasn't a place you'd expect to find people following Jesus Christ, and yet there were believers there who belonged to Jesus, who were loved by God, called to be saints, living a new life. To bring it into today's world, that might be, just, just think of the most secular city that you can think of in America. Uh, the place that hasn't got a shred of any kind of gospel witness or, or Jesus or churches or anything, and maybe where there's like the most kind of depravity you can think of, think of that city and then think of hearing there's a thriving church there. <laughs> there's a bunch of people who are completely different from that, and they, they love God, and they're, and they're changed, they're being transformed. And you'd say, that's encouraging. That is encouraging. Even there, that can happen. And that's what Paul hears. The whole world has heard that in Rome, there are believers in Jesus. And so he wants to encourage him about that. He says, you know, you've, you've been acted on by God. An amazing thing has happened. You're a believer in a hard place. And I just thank God for that. Starts with encouragement. Here's a lesson for us in that, I think. I'll put it this way. Don't miss the person while you're delivering your message. Don't miss the person while delivering your message. That is, Paul doesn't just go straight to verses 16 and 17. You know, here's my introduction. Now, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let me tell you what the gospel is. No, he says, first, I thank God for you. Before he gets to gospel, he gets to you. Before he gets to gospel, he gets to personal relationship. He gets to personal encouragement. I've heard something about you specifically, and I just wanted to call it to your attention and thank God for you. He starts with relationship, with a connection. He doesn't skip engaging with the person just in order to get to his message. It's just really the principle of valuing the person who's in front of you. 
and not just laying on them all the things that you want to say. We can go astray here, I think. At least I know I do. Um, it might be in a counseling session, and you've got this thing that you want to say to somebody. <laughs> and so you're going into it thinking, I'm going to say this, and then like, as soon as you get the opportunity, you just blah, you just dump it on them. You know? or, or maybe it's instruction of your, of your kids. Um, you know, I've been noticing something, and I really need to bring this up and point this out. And so like, as soon as I get a chance, I'm going to go, and I'm going to say it. You know, you need to do this, uh, or, or correction, especially that. You know, something's been building up inside of you, like, man, that really bugs me. I think i got to say that finally. I'm going to do it. And then it's just in there, and then you, like, see that person, and then, blah, here comes the correction, right? We can do that to each other. We can bypass the person to get right to the thing we want to say. We don't really have any interest in them except as a receptacle of all the stuff that we want to pour out get our agenda accomplished, and then move on. But that's not, go- that's not gospel way. <laughs> that's not Paul's way. That's not God's way. He starts with encouragement before even getting to the encouraging thing of the gospel. Remember, gospel ministry is incarnational. God didn't just leave us with a book. He came to us in a person. He came into this world as a living, breathing human who walked among us, who ate and drank with people, who had relationship with them, who loved them to the end, John 13, and gave gospel. (laughs) It It was Paul's ethic, too. The way we honor the gospel message is to begin with relationship, to begin with genuine care. Here's what he said in 1 Thessalonians 2.8 in New American Standard. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. You know, he's not just a hit-and-run evangelist. Uh, He's not just a teacher, you know, kind of just spouting things. He genuinely cares for the person in front of him. And one of the ways he, he demonstrates that care is through encouragement, starting with encouragement. Um, it's making a connection. You know, we have these cards that we printed out. I think there's still some out in the, the lobby. Because this applies to how we, how we reach out to a non-believer, um, starting with a connection, starting with encouragement, if, if we can. Uh, they're called the C4 process. I don't know if you remember that. A little card about yay big. I, hope, I think we still got some out there. It's just steps for how we introduce somebody to Jesus. The first step is connect. First C is connect. Just take the initiative to get to know that person. The second C is care. Uh, find some way to be a blessing to them. Then only after that do we get to the third C, which is communicate something about Jesus Christ, to begin to communicate the gospel. And then the last C is commit, calling them to commit, to trust in Christ. That's the process, but it starts with relationship before we get to news. News should come in the context of genuine care. And if that doesn't come naturally to you, there's a way to grow in it, which is by disciplining yourself to be an encourager. To encourage somebody forces you to find something in them that you can appreciate. And once you start thinking about what you can appreciate, you develop real care for that person. And then when you bring gospel, it'll be in the context of that care, and it'll be easier to hear. Not everybody will be won over by that, but it is a pattern that there should be in our life. Don't miss the person 
while delivering your message. Paul starts with encouragement and with relationship. But he goes on, having mentioned that he's been praying for an opportunity to come to them, he tells them what he would like to do, what he intends to do once he gets to Rome. So let's look at the second section here, Paul's intentions among the believers. There's three things that Paul would like to have happen when he goes and finally visits the believers in Rome. Uh, Three things. One, he wants to impart something. Uh, Two, he wants to receive something. And three, he wants to reap something. So let's look at each one of those. First, what he wants to impart. Verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, I want to get something across to you when I come. Uh, I want to leave you with something. I want to pass on something to you that will be an encouragement to you, to you. And he calls it a spiritual gift, which is the same word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 14, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Uh, a spiritual gift is, is the spirit within you working through certain abilities that he's given you to bless other people. Every manifestation of the spirit is for the common good. And Paul's got gifts. He's an apostle. He's a church planter. He's a preacher of the gospel. And he wants to come and bring that package to the Romans and, and have them be blessed by it, impart something to them which, of course, centers around the gospel because that's what he's set apart for. He, he wants to ground them in the truth of it. He, he wants it to affect them. He says, I'm, I'm eager to come and preach this gospel to you. That, that's how I'm going to deliver this and impart this spiritual gift. And when he does, they will be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He's going to transfer faith to them through the gospel. So he wants to impart something to them. And he says, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm obliged to, to, to do this. Um, I'm required to, in a way. In verses 14 and 15, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So, so Paul sees himself as like a, a UPS driver. I use that illustration because we've got a UPS guy in our house. Uh, a UPS driver drives up to your house. He's got a truck. Um, he's got a whole bunch of packages in there, right? They don't belong to him, do they? They belong to the people he's supposed to deliver it to. He's obligated to deliver those gifts because they weren't given to him for, to take home. They were given to him for other people. Paul says, I'm obligated that way. God has entrusted something to me, the gospel of his son. He's set me apart to, to speak about it. He's made me apostle to go around and do that. So I have an obligation. I have a stewardship. This isn't for me. It's for you. It's for me and you. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver that. I'm going to impart this good news to you who are in Rome. And not just for you who are in the church, but to believers and non-believers. I'm under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish I'm going to preach the gospel to the church. I'm going to preach the gospel to the people outside the church because that's why I've been given this. So he wants to impart a spiritual gift through the gospel. He wants to transfer that truth 
That's the first thing. But he also wants to receive something. Again, verse 12, he intends that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul not only wants to encourage them, he wants to be encouraged by them. You might think, hey, a guy like Paul, gospel expert, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you're the one who writes this stuff. <laughs> you're the one who's met the Lord. Uh, nobody has a closer relationship with Jesus than you do. Uh, why would you need encouragement? Don't you get everything you need just from your own walk with God? And he would say, you know, I do get a lot from that. That's, that's the center. But I need you, too. <laughs> I need to be encouraged by your faith. God hasn't made people irrelevant to my journey, to my encouragement, to my steadfastness. God wants to also encourage me through the saints, through the church, through the other believers who have a faith story. I need to see it working itself out in other people, not only just me and God. That's not enough. I need you also. Everybody needs this kind of encouragement. We never get beyond the need for fellowship. So he wants to receive something. He wants to receive encouragement. I'll come back to that in a moment. But there's one more thing that he wants, one more intention for going to Rome, and he wants to reap something. Verse 13, he wants to reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want to reap a harvest. So what's the harvest? Well, first it's among you, meaning you, the believers. You who have already trusted Christ and are in the family of God. I want to reap a harvest among you. So what's that? That's your spiritual growth. That's discipleship. That's seeing God transform you from one degree of glory to another as you behold the glorious Son. <laughs> that would be a harvest. I would like to reap that. I would like to come in there like a big combine and, and reap your transformed lives through this gospel message. I'd love to see God change you and grow you and stir you up. And in fact, that's what he's going to be sowing seeds for in the rest of this letter so that he can come and harvest that among them. But he says, I also want to reap this harvest among the non-believers, the Gentiles, as he calls them, which is the harvest of souls, the harvest of people coming to faith in Christ. Uh, I'm there for that. I'm there to build the church, and I'm there to expand the church. I'm there to disciple, and I'm there to evangelize. <laughs> I'm there to see you grow in faith, and I'm, seeing, I'm there to see other people come to faith. That's what I want to see. I, that's the harvest. I'm like a farmer, and, and I'm eager to bring in the grain, which is hanging there. <laughs> and Jesus even said, send out laborers into my harvest. Like, it's hanging there. It's out there. Go get it. <laughs> and Paul's eager to go get it. <clears throat> These are his intentions in going to Rome. Impart a spiritual gift. Receive encouragement. Reap a harvest of spiritual growth. Now, let's take a step back from that. There's another lesson for us as a church by that example. Ministry, mutual ministry, for the sake of mutual encouragement, is the purpose of our own spiritual gifts. 
Mutual ministry for the sake of mutual encouragement is the purpose of our own spiritual gifts. Paul's intentions for the church in Rome are also our privileges to do for one another. There's a community that the gospel creates, one in which there's imparting and there's receiving, where there's imparting and there's reaping, where there's encouragement and use of gifts going out, and there's encouragement coming back. That's the beautiful thing that God intends to produce and grow and stir up. So before Paul's even gotten to the gospel, he's still sort of saying, you know, there's this, this, this environment that it creates, and I'm eager to stir it up when I come to you. This environment of mutual ministry for the sake of mutual encouragement. If you're a believer... You have spiritual gifts. Uh, each one, to each one is given the, manifest of the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, 1 Corinthians 12. You've all got something. You've got a package that God's given to you to deliver somewhere to a person over and over and over and over again from this inexhaustible fountain of life, this Holy Spirit that God has placed in you. You've got this to give out. You've got gifts like mercy and teaching and leadership and helping Maybe you've got extraordinary faith. Maybe you have unusual success in praying for someone to be healed, and you see healings. Maybe your gifting is it's conducive to evangelism, and you can stir others up to evangelism. Each one's got something. We've got something to impart to other people. We have it to give to one another. And like Paul, we're under obligation. It's, it's for the common good. It's for each other. It's to mutually encourage each other. That's, that's the environment that God wants here for us. Stir each other up by the use of your gifts and by your own faith. Yours and mine, Paul says. Mutual encouragement. You've got stories about God's work in your life that would encourage other people if you'd share it with them. There's something that God did, and you're amazed, and you're like, thank you, God, and that's really helped me. Say that to somebody else. Say that to somebody else in your, in your discipleship group. Say that to somebody else this morning or at a Friday worship night or, or whatever on the phone. God's given us stuff to share so that we can be encouraged by each other's faith. You have a testimony about how you put your trust in Christ. That's a miracle. <laughs> that's an encouragement. It's like Paul hearing, hey, in Rome, there's Christians. And you hear, you're a Christian? Really? Tell me about how that happened. you got stories about how God met your needs. You have stories about how he's given you courage for a situation. God can use you to speak truth and wisdom and promises to one another that we might be encouraged by one another's faith. This, this beautiful back and forth of imparting and receiving all centered around this gospel of the Son, this, this God who has broken into our lives and done something. And this is real. You know, we have the privilege of doing that for each other. And if Paul needed that, you and I need that. I'll give you an example of how I, how I was helped this week. I was on the, on a, the phone with a brother. Um, he's a fellow Sovereign Grace pastor. I spoke with him uh, just briefly at the conference, his name is Tim Kerr. He has a heart for pastors and a heart for prayer. And I was walking down the hall, and 
he just asked me, hey, how you doing? And at that point, I was discouraged about something and kind of down. And, and he's like, well, you know, I, um, here's my email. Contact me. I want to pray with you. Um, I'll just call you. I'll just talk to you, and we'll pray. And so I said, okay, great. Yeah, I, won't, I won't say no. <laughs> so uh, we set it up. We had this phone call. It was set up for, for Thursday, and he calls me. And uh, here's what he did. For the first 45 minutes, he just asked me a whole bunch of questions about my life. You know, I don't really know you that well. Um, so tell me, like, um, tell me about your family. He wanted to know every single child that we had. He wanted to know about Mary. Um, tell me, how did you get to Colorado? You know, tell me about your journey. How did you become a pastor? Then he asked, so what's the main encouragement that you have in your church right now? And what's the main challenge that you have right now? And so this is about an hour. I'm talking. I mean, he's asking all the questions. I'm just talking. And then at the end of that, he says, okay, now, I just want to encourage you. <laughs> and, and, he, and he starts by uh, saying, you know, all pastors go through stuff. Now, this isn't any different. This is, this, is what, this is what it is. You know that, but I'm telling you that anyway. And I just want to encourage you. God is with you. God's grace is on your church. He's doing a work there. You just need patience to, to wait for the things that you're looking for. But he's going to do things. And it was really prophetic, actually. Some of it was like prophetic words to me. And then he said, let's just pray. I'm just going to pray. And then he prays God's blessing over us and prays just all sorts of things for our family, for each one of our kids. So when we're done, this is an hour, I say, hey, I feel strengthened. <laughs> I am. I feel, I feel like I can do the rest of my day now. I feel like I can, you know, I've got stuff to do. And I feel like I can do that with like a clear mind. Uh, I feel encouraged. That's what God wants each of us to do for one another. That's the community that the gospel is intended to create. It isn't only ideas, concepts, theology. It creates something. It creates this. It creates environments where we do mutual ministry to one another. And friends, that's what discipleship groups are for. So Dan mentioned them. We'll come back to that. That's our primary place where we can do what Paul intended to do. He couldn't do it from where he was writing the letter. He wanted to go there and do it. He had to do it in person. That's what God wants for us. Get together in a room. Tell your stories. Pray for one another. Encourage each other with your faith. Look into God's word. Stir each other up to love and good deeds. But do it in a room. Get together and do this. That's what our discipleship group meetings are for. What we wouldn't ever want is for our discipleship groups to just be seen as a Bible discussion with food. <laughs> like, wait, we're going to eat. That's important. That's intentional. We are going to discuss the Bible. We need to do that. But it isn't only for our heads it's, it's a place for mutual ministry. It's a place where we can stop and pray over somebody. Let them maybe gush, like, here's what's going on in my life. I can't. This has been building up inside of me. i got no place to go with this. Well, here's where you can go with it. And we can pray over you. And we can speak words over you. We can bring maybe prophetic words for you. That's what we do there. It can look like grieving with those who grieve, rejoice with those who rejoice. Where are you going to do that <laughs> if you don't have a place like a discipleship group? There's, we have that place. It looks like sharing Scripture to speak to a specific situation in your life. You know, maybe you're 
devotional life's been a little dry lately, but you're still going through life. Stuff's still hitting you. And you didn't find it in the Bible where to deal with that, but somebody else actually has been given that for you. God's directed them to the text that's going to make the difference in your life this week. That's the environment that we are wanting to create with discipleship groups. And it doesn't happen automatically just because we put each other in a room. But that's why we have leadership to direct it. But that's what we're after. This, this environment, this gospel environment where there's imparting and there's receiving. There's giving and there's reaping. All around this person, this gospel concerning the Son. So I encourage you, go to a discipleship group this week and come ready to participate. It's for your encouragement to do it. Let's move to the last section of the passage, which is Paul's message to the believers. His message finally gets to that. Having connected with encouragement, having revealed his intentions for his visit, he turns to his message, which is the gospel Um, Verses 16 and 17 introduce the main theme of the whole book of Romans. He mentioned in verse 15 that he's eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome. And then he continues in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this is like a peek into a treasure-filled room. (laughs) You know, like you open the door, and you only see a little crack into it, and you know there's treasure in there, (laughs) but you only get to see a little bit of it. That's what verses 16 and 17 are. It's going to take the rest of the book of Romans to explain what's in those verses. But it's a start, And so let's take a peek with Paul into this treasured-filled room. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not sorry to be associated with it. I'm not trying to hide this good news concerning God's Son. Now, why might a person be ashamed of it? Why would that even be a temptation? Well, I mentioned last week it's because the gospel can seem like a fairy tale. Because in it, we say a man dead three days got up and walked out of his tomb, appeared to a bunch of people, went up into the sky, where he now sits on a throne over the universe, where he's coming back again with myriads of angels to gather up all the people that believe in him to go to an eternal paradise. That sounds far-fetched to modern minds. Sounded far-fetched to their minds. Um, Sounds like a fairy tale to many people. Has more in common with myths of ancient civilizations who made up all sorts of things. We might be tempted to blush in communicating that story to other people. But I think more than that, the reason we could be ashamed of the gospel, we could shrink back from talking about it, is because it actually offends people's pride. The gospel offends us because, as we're going to see in a moment, it says, it assumes that each of us is unrighteous. 
it assumes that we need saving. It assumes there's something deeply wrong with us at our core that needs a solution. And we don't typically like to think of ourselves that way. You know, I'm not at the core. There's nothing wrong here. You know, I have my good days and my bad days. But at the core, I'm a good person. Don't be telling me that I'm some rotten person. But the gospel says, yeah, you are. <laughs> that's, where this, that's the starting point, as we're going to see. In fact, Paul is going to spend about the next two chapters driving that home. <laughs> the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, the first half of chapter 3, is all about convincing us that you need to hear good news <laughs> because you're not righteous. That, that's what the gospel starts with. And Paul says, it, I'm tempted to be ashamed. Some people might be ashamed because they don't want to say that, but you have to say that if you want to be true to the gospel. But Paul says, you know what? I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of this message, and here's why. Because it's the power of God for salvation. That's why I'm not ashamed about it. It's God's own power <laughs> to save. That, that's what this message is. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're religious or non-religious, wise or foolish, refined or a barbarian, this good news concerning God's Son is the very power to save you from your sins and unto eternal life. It doesn't just have power, it is power, according to Paul. It's God's power formed into words. It's the power to transform your life. That's why I'm not ashamed. This is good stuff. This is amazing news, what this is. Why should I be ashamed of something so wonderful? Maybe an illustration would help here to get at how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Let's suppose you've been trying to lose 50 pounds, and you've been listening to all kinds of advice about how to do that, and you take that advice seriously, and you not only don't lose 50 pounds, you gain 10 pounds. You would say, that advice had no power <laughs> to change me. <laughs> but now let's say you find some expert nutritionist who gives you a new way, who points out the fundamental flaw in all the other things that you've been trying, and gives you this new way, and you try this new way, and sure enough, you not only lose the 50 pounds, but the 10 more that you gained. And you would say, this new way has power to change me. That's the sense in which the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It has the power to transform you, and not something small like weight, he has the power to transform your being, <laughs> your inner person, your fundamental identity, your change you from one kingdom to another, from a slave of sin to a slave to righteousness. It's got the power to do a miracle in your life. It has the power to rescue you from death to life, from an eternity of punishment to an eternity of glorious life. And only the gospel can do that. 
Now, you don't automatically experience the power of it just by hearing it. Because he says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It needs to be received by the heart that believes it in order for the power to happen. Someone has said the gospel is like a hot pepper. Like if you just hold it in your hand, it doesn't really affect you very much. It's only when you bite into it. Then it affects you. <laughs> you got to bite into the gospel. You got to act on it. You got to believe, lean in, trust. Say, this is for me. This is the way. I will walk in it. Then, then you start to experience this power. That's when God does miracles. That's why we have no reason to be ashamed of this gospel. You wouldn't be ashamed to tell somebody, hey, there's a million dollars in the bank. All you got to do is go get it. Go sign this piece of paper. It's yours. <laughs> Nobody would be ashamed to say that. <laughs> Why? Because it's in your best interest. You got something good waiting for you. Gospel is better than that. There's a way for you to escape <laughs> from sin and its consequence. There's a way for you to have life. Go get it. There's nothing to be ashamed about that. But probably one of the best ways that we can learn not to be ashamed is we've got to be convinced ourselves about how good it is. We have to experience the full effect of its transforming power as we believe because it can go out of our minds. We can start to put our hope in other things and we start to droop. But while we're beholding Jesus and the cross and all that it is for us, then all of a sudden, wow, this is exciting stuff. I'm not ashamed of this. This is the power for salvation here. Fortunately, the rest of the Romans is calculated to help us with that. <laughs> to take a long walk through what does it mean? What, it, what is all yours through Jesus Christ? To take a good year and a half like we're going to do, and soak this up until you're like, this is too good to keep in. <laughs> i got to tell this to somebody. That's, that's the goal. That's what I'm shooting for. I think that's what God is shooting for <laughs> in writing this to us, to love it. All right, let's get to the gospel itself. We, haven't, we still haven't figured it out. We don't know what's in there. We know it's concerning the Son. We know you shouldn't be ashamed of it. We know it has to do with salvation. But how does it save? What, what's the way? Paul opens the crack under that treasure room, verse 17. He says, For in it, that is, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he's saying the gospel reveals something. It uncovers for us something that we wouldn't see on our own or apart from it. And that something that it reveals is called the righteousness of God. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So whatever that means, the righteousness of God, it's only the gospel that uncovers it. You're not going to find this information anywhere else. Now, Paul's not going to fully explain yet what the righteousness of God is. Actually, he's going to pick that subject up again in chapter 3, verse 21, and spend a good long while on it. 
So we're not going to exhaust what that means here, and you probably don't want to because it's already been a long sermon, and that's a lot to take on. But we are going to be able to see some important things here for starters. First thing, how is it revealed? How is this righteousness of God revealed, whatever it is? It's in that phrase, it's revealed from faith for faith. Now, there's several different ways the English translations translate that. Um, You'll read from faith to faith, or you'll read from faith uh, or by faith from first to last, or it is accomplished from start to finish by faith. A lot of different ways that this is... Uh, We try to get at this. The exact meaning isn't completely clear, but this much is certain. It takes faith to see this righteousness of God. Whether it's start to finish, a work of faith, whether it's our response to faith, uh, our response of faith to God's faithfulness, which is one way of reading it, the operative word is faith. Only faith will uncover or see this revealed righteousness of God. So what is it? What is the righteousness of God that faith reveals? Well, as a way of explaining himself, Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is revealed in this statement that the righteous shall live by faith. Now, for that to make any sense to us, it would help to know how this verse reads in the original Greek. In the Greek, it's literally, the righteous by faith shall live. That's the order. So Paul could be saying one of two things here. He could be saying, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. So faith is connected to being righteous. Or he could be saying that the one who is righteous will live by faith. So that faith is connected to living. So which one is it? Well, I don't think we have to decide between friends (laughs) because they're both true. (laughs) And really, I think the only way Paul could say both at the same time is to say it the way he did. If you are a genuinely righteous person, as God describes righteousness, you will live by faith. It will characterize your life. There will be the obedience of faith from back in the introduction. But what I think Paul is emphasizing in this verse is the other side of the coin, which is that the person who is righteous by faith will live. He is going to be saved. She is going to be saved. That's where this ties into the concept of the righteousness of God. Paul's saying in verse 17, the righteousness of God is that righteous and blameless character of God by which he makes us righteous by faith. So it's the righteous character of God by which he makes us righteous by faith, by that means. Our faith in Jesus as Savior is the instrument by which God counts us righteous or acceptable to him. And that's how we get saved. And so you could translate it as the NIV does, the righteousness from God. Righteousness that he imparts to us through the means of faith so that 
the one who is righteous by faith shall live, as opposed to righteous by works, righteous by some other way. No, it's the one that's righteous by faith, the one who has received God's righteousness that will live. So what's the righteousness of God? It's him taking unrighteous people, making them righteous in his righteousness. <laughs> I know that's complicated. <laughs> but just, just hear this. We start out as unrighteous. We can't change it. God says, I'm going to give it to you. But the way I'm going to give it to you is by faith. And when I give it to you, you will live. You will be saved. That's the power of God. God coming in and doing for us what we can't do. <laughs> and only through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see more about how he factors in when we get back to chapter 3. Let me just leave you with that encouragement. You who are righteous by faith, you will live. <laughs> You've been given life. We're going to see the blessings of that when we go through Romans. You're more than conquerors in this life. In all your challenges, that's one blessing. That's one way you've received life. You're also going to escape the futility of this corrupt world <laughs> and receive riches forevermore, a glorious new life. That's how you receive life. You have that by faith. You have that because God's given you righteousness. He's counted you righteous. We have a lot to look forward to. I hope you can stay with us as we go through the rest of Romans. Let's pray. This is good news, Lord that you don't start with us. You start with you. This is the gospel concerning your son. And then it affects us. So thank you, Lord, for making a way. Thank you for your power. Give us expectation that your power can do more and more than we could ever ask or think that it is the solution to every need. It is the strength for every hardship. It's the promise of things to come. We just ask that you would open our eyes more and more to this. Give us the security that you intend for it to have. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.